Welcome back to Pacific Voices, where we're hearing some Pacific Islands perspectives on climate change. Our conversations on this podcast have tended to focus on the land of Kiribati in the Pacific. But it's really the ocean that defines atoll countries like Kiribati and the people's way of life. As our recently departed friend Twaki Tima used to say to me all the time, Simon, we are people of the sea. So I knew when I put this show together that I wanted the last episode to be about the ocean and its role in Kiribati's life. There's no better person to talk about this with than my good friend and colleague, Adantes Tekiao. I've been working with Adantes, Tuea, and others in the Coastal Fisheries Unit of the Ministry of Fisheries and Marine Resource Development for a long time. It's coming on 20 years now. We've been working to track how the coral reefs are responding to frequent El Nino-driven heat waves and what that means for the impacts of climate change, both in Kiribati and in other parts of the world. And when we recorded this interview, Adantes and I had just completed a series of scuba surveys at reef sites in South Tarawa, North Tarawa, and the neighboring atoll of Abang. And those surveys involved taking a variety of measurements to assess how the reefs have recovered from past coral bleaching events, but it also required searching around for some long-lost ocean temperature loggers, often a pretty futile search that involved digging in the sand for a very long time. So in our conversation, Adantes and I talk about the ocean's role in Kitabas life, the mystery of the local free divers and just how long they stay underwater. We talk about fisheries management, and we talk about the pole of home. The conversation begins with a chat about local culture and customs, inspired by where we did the recording. My name is Arandes Tegel. I'm from Madurai, the southern islands of uh, Kiribati. I'm working as a dive instructor at the Coastal Fisheries Division. I've been working with fisheries since 2004. Arandes and I came to meet to go over some data and needed somewhere to sit and he knew the people in the house nearby and they said sure you can just come and sit in our place so we're sitting in an, an outdoor uh, hut that's protected from the sun what this is a buia this is a buia can you describe what a buia is i would say an elevated hut because you you sit on it above the ground it's got four pillars and just roof uh, thatch yeah. thatching roof on it this one's got solid wood on it, but we're sitting on a mat, hand in this mat. And so people, what, this is just, people just for a rest? Yeah, is this is for? a common, this is one of the common like uh, places outside the house. Yeah. So like hang out, a hangout spot. You could actually have it for sleeping, which is probably a good place to sleep as well. Cause you got the breeze out instead of like indoors where you don't have AC yeah. or fans in there. You can come out here and then, yeah. So this is like a, I'd prefer like having to rest in one of these places. Buyas, uh, I would say. Yeah. Yeah. The design. I always said the design is great because when you're sitting here, you sit, you know, cross-legged on the mat or whatever. Uh, your head will be up, like covered by the thatch. You're not going. No sunlight's going to be hitting you. And then it's open enough on the sides that you get a good little breeze good breeze in. The only thing is you need to be able to sit cross-legged for a long time. <laughs> <laughs> so if you're coming to Kitabas, I recommend practicing. <laughs> before you come <laughs> yes um because it would be not advisable to stretch your feet in front of the elders and yeah. especially when you're in the maniaba where you're 
being uh, welcomed as guests. So, yeah, practice. So you, you put your legs cross. You cross your legs so that your feet aren't pointing towards anybody. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. Would they? Would they be forgiving of a? They would be. They would be because yeah. they would know it would be a first time. You're you're a foreigner, and then yeah. But it would help us. They would be actually happy and surprised if you actually do fold your legs and sit in in a, in a manner that we are doing right now. Yeah. And um, I'm doing it much more painfully than you are, though. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the times I've been sometimes because we're at a community event or something, one of the other islands, the times I've been we've been in the Maniabas, people always seem really appreciative. You yeah. just have to be ready for the fact that as a foreigner, you will be expected to eat first, <laughs> even if you kind of crash the banquet. And first. <laughs> yeah, and I if I recall once we were I think when we were in, doing the work in Abang, I think there was a funeral. And they insisted we come and then we all had to stand. You also have to introduce yourself. Yeah. And we all stood and introduced ourselves. Um, I was, I found that it was very nice of them to let us participate. But I remember the discomfort of having like 150 people sitting in this Maniaba. Somebody had died and they're like, oh, you're the foreigner. You have to go and eat before we can. I was like, really? I don't feel right about this, but that's the culture. So I was like, okay, I'll go and do it. Yeah. Anyways. I, I think this is, yeah, it's kind of like a weakness we Kiribati people have. It's like we are so welcoming to our, our foreigners. We should, I think we should take it easy on that, <laughs> it might be I guess. It's a strength. I don't know. Maybe it's a strength. Yeah. Oh, I'm kidding. I mean, yeah, it's just, it's, we, we want to welcome uh, guests and foreigners. We want to make them feel uh, happy and we want them to enjoy their time while they're here, which is, uh, it's actually like practically law, I guess, in the whole of Kiribati to do this, the things that you've experienced as a, as a guest. It's not just a foreigner being an imitong, like a white person from another part of the world, yeah. but it's just if you're not from the community. Right? You're not so from if the you go to another island. You're not from the island. Yeah. You're totally like a totally new person uh, there. You have if you have no people there as well, like uh, someone you know or so, whatever. And then, yes, you are a guest. You are treated as a guest. Uh, and so you'll be the guest of honor in the Maniaba. Yeah. Yeah. It's 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 I don't know. It's pretty good. I think it's a pretty good cultural practice. Probably uh, dissolves a lot of fights and disputes. <laughs> right. When you have to defer to the. I guess. <laughs> yeah, maybe you could act as a, yeah, some some sort of like a pastor or something. You could like, if there's if there's a fight in 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 the place that you are at, you could you as a foreigner could act like as a, a mediator or something, a peace giver. So I think let's calm things down. You guys take it easy. Yeah, they can really? they can actually um, listen because you're a foreigner. You're you're a guest and you're asking them to like, you know, it's, it's dissolve this. And then, okay, because you say so. And then behind your back, they'll say, you're lucky this foreigner told me to stand Is up. that right? That really would work? <laughs> I would think so. Wow. Yeah. I'll, I'll have to test that someday. We haven't come across it yet. So <laughs> okay. I, let's, if, if it ever happens, we'll test the theory. I'm not going to test it late at night in front of the nightclub across oh, the street no, from no, where I'm no. staying. That, doesn't that work would be a bad idea. Nope. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. You might get yourself into another thing there. We moved on to talking about how Adam Tace became Kitabasa's only paddy dive instructor and about the challenges of diving in remote locations. Tace has been diving for research and work in almost all of Kitabasa's 33 atolls and reef islands. 
our friend and colleague Tawaya, who gets mentioned here, may be the only person who's been underwater in as many or more parts of the country. Adentes is uh, mentioned that he is a dive instructor. You're the only one in the country, right? Unfortunately, yes. Yeah. Yeah. So you've been the one that's, um, with help from our friend and colleague Tawaya, you've yeah. been the one that's been training uh -huh. all the other people that come into the government to do dive work, right? Yes. Yeah. I helped people on Christmas Island back in 2013. Me and um, a guy from Hawaii, actually, yeah. Pete Basabi. I think that was his name. So he came in, he was supposed to train the divers by giving the, you know, the local uh, language barrier. So I had to like do the whole thing with him. And uh, I basically ended up teaching the whole class. I'm not, uh, I'm not surprised the language <laughs> barriers have to start talking about nitrogen and oxygen. Exactly. It's, going to be, it's going to be challenging. And actually having to translate the PADI exam, to the, the written <gasps> one. So it was Oh, right, was because there's, no, there's not going to be a, lo a version in the local language. No, no, we don't. So we don't have it. So. There's no, th this is what is always fascinating, because I've been working with Iron Taste for a long time and uh, doing coral reef surveys here. There's no commercial dive operation in this part of Kiribati. There's no like dive tourism, really. It hasn't started yet. So there's nothing. Yeah, <laughs> there's nothing there. And so the people that are diving are either your team in the government. And then maybe in the past, there's been some people that dive for to collect uh, sea cucumbers or, or whatever. But because of that, we were talking about this earlier in the week. You've probably been diving in more places in this country than anyone like anyone in history? Um, you could be right on that one. I mean, Toya could become close, yeah. but we, yes, I, um, I've, I, uh, I've been diving the whole of the Kiribati Islands, the whole of Phoenix Islands, and Christmas in the Northern Line Islands, yeah. in the Line Islands. So yeah, if I got a few, only a few um, Line Islands that I haven't been to. Yeah, so any scientists listening that are planning to do work in the other line islands, they need to invite you so that you can complete the set of all the... Of that the that would be amazing. That would be a feat <laughs> to accomplish, actually. And uh, yes, yeah, we've only got a few. I've only, well, I've only got not more than 10 islands left in the whole of Kiribati, which, more, most, which are all up in the north, uh, northern line islands and, yeah, line islands. And so in none of this has really been like recreational diving. You're doing this all yeah. because, so is it, it's scientists like me coming. Yeah. And um, coastal fisheries work, um, uh, stock assessment work, everything else is, oh, everything is just, just work. Uh, with the people team, I was involved with the people oh, work. Phoenix Islands. The Phoenix yeah. Islands. So going to the Phoenix Islands, all eight of the Phoenix Islands, um, that was with the collaboration between the New England Aquarium and the Maillard office with, uh, when they were running PIPA and they had to do studies there, continuing on from what Greg Stone and, um, uh, David Obura and those other scientists yeah. in the first place that, um, did the first round of surveys. So I was, I was lucky enough to be part of the, those, um, uh, follow-up surveys afterwards. Yeah, because the Phoenix, like we're in the main island chain where everybody, where the Kitabas people are originally from. Phoenix Islands is mostly uninhabited. All of, uh, yeah. except Canton. Except Canton, yeah. yeah. You've now been scuba diving for for a couple decades yep. and a patty instructor for a lot of that time. 
Did you, like when you were a kid, did you want, were you like obsessed with the ocean? Did you want to become a diver? Like what inspired all of this? Huh, yeah. I mean, I would, I would probably say that it, it would be the same thing for all Kiribati people. It could, be, it, it, it may be surprisingly di different for others, but growing up in like uh, a country that's also just what, three meters above sea level and you're yeah. surrounded by water, there's nowhere to go but water. So I grew up swimming uh, in the lagoons um, and on my home island, we don't have a lagoon. So it's just basically going out in the um, outer reefs and stuff. And yeah, we, I, I, it got to me pretty young. I was um, I was going out spear fishing with my uncles, my cousins, and all that, and I loved being out in the water. <clears throat> and so, I got a chance to go to high school. I wanted to focus my um, studies on uh, in the water. Uh, didn't quite go as planned, but then I was lucky to be in fisheries, which opened a new door of scuba diving, and I was like, okay, so. I'm heading in this way. So uh, I was very, they found me very keen. I wasn't afraid to go um, diving or, or going to water activities and all that. Yeah. So they gave me a shot of uh, becoming a, a dive instructor, uh, which wasn't a problem because I was already into it. And um, yeah, it was, it was easy for me to, you know, going yeah. through it. It wasn't easy doing the patty stuff, no, before, but because I wanted, I wanted that, and I, I was clearly into it. So, so you were sponsored to, to do I was, it in a I way, was right? Thank, yeah, thankfully, I was sponsored by the, I think it was a, the New Zealand government, actually. And that's where, uh, for some odd reason, went to the coldest part of New Zealand in Wellington <laughs> to do the diving structure. How was, how was diving in the cold water? Uh, not, not pleasant, actually. <laughs> to be honest, there was... Yeah, free, you got freezing hands, you couldn't feel your thumbs and face, but it paid out well, it, it turned out good. And just for just for folks who are wondering, the water here pretty much doesn't really go below 26, I think. It's usually between 27 and 29, maybe hits 30 in an El Nino event, and the lagoon can be even warmer in places. Yeah. Um, you were talking, we were talking about Aurora, where you're, where your home island. Um, and you mentioned that there's no lagoon. So Aurora, for people listening, Aurora is not an atoll. It's like a small reef island. And so I've never been, but I think like when you're talking about swimming there, that's not for the faint of heart because it's just a tiny island surrounded by the ocean, yes. like and breaking waves all around. You're not supposed to go in the water unless you're like, they know you can swim like before, like in, in, on, uh, yeah, in the, in the reefs, like on the, when it's high tide and stuff, but don't go be like beyond the breaking waves, right? Yeah. Until you're old enough, and then your elders, like your older brother, older cousins, uncles, and whoever thinks that you're like deemed okay to go out there, then you can, yeah, you can go with them. You can go fish. You can start going where, because uh, they're they're riptides actually as well. So as if it's not dangerous. Yeah. Enough. <laughs> so you, you need to be, how do you, you need to be physically fit as well. Like before, before going, really going out and, and, and being out and, um, in the open ocean. 
And there's like, there's, I presume, tons of local knowledge to ex exactly where to go out and how to avoid the riptides. And Everyone has a way. Yeah. Um, we usually, if we are starting out, you, you go, 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 go out from the channel because there's a small channel. Okay. You know, for when the boats, the ships come in and then the boats um, like take uh, stocks and yeah. cargoes in. Right? So it's like a, a, a beginner's uh, entrance point. Oh. So you usually go out from the channel, which is easy, just follow the tide out and then start swimming and then going out and then coming in back in. You can get out timing your way out from the, bra the, through waves, the breaking waves through the breaking waves. Yeah. yeah. It always makes me think, have you, have you seen the movie Castaway? Oh, yes, yes. It always makes me, being here makes me think of the movie Castaway, where Tom Hanks was stuck on the island for a long time because he was scared trying to get through the breaking <laughs> waves. It is scary. The risk of you having, you know, being pulled under and then get stuck between the reefs and then like, you know, the grooves and all that, that's, that's a sure thing to happen. That would so make you my get, dive safety officer have a heart attack. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. Wow. So it's, it's like I said, you have to get like uh, gain experience to yeah. know when you, if you like take advantage of that tide coming in and then pulling you through the grooves, you just have like to th swim through. Grooves it, right? in the reef. Yeah. Because the waves are breaking over the over shallow it. part yeah. of the reef, right? So you can either go down and hold on to the reef while the breaking waves go over. And then when it kind of dies down, you swim over, you yeah. swim out. And then hoping that there's the second one wouldn't hit you again and then get rolled roll onto the reef. Uh, or you can just, you know, swim under, holding onto the grooves until you get out. Or sometimes what's even uh, not a good thing, but it'll sometimes pull you under and then you can get stuck between the grooves, which I've actually seen it happen as well, but in, we managed to get out. I thought it was a friend of us doing and then most most times they what they do is if they do that if the current pulls them out in between the groove they just swim through it i try to wiggle their way yeah, yeah and then get it um pop out from the other side first you know um we we haven't talked about this in a long time but sometimes when i'm here people especially when we're out on the boat or something somebody will start telling me about the the traditional way of becoming a good free diver <laughs> And what you're supposed to inhale and this like burn a bunch there's if i'm right you're supposed to burn a bunch of particular plants it's mostly coconut husks oh it's mostly coconut husks which don't burn but just smokes <laughs> yeah yeah it's not a common practice these days but before uh, the island of medicaid they do it i know a couple of people there even in back in onoto as well yeah um, your other home island. yeah yeah I, I, I know a couple of people who can free dive for like, I don't know, almost an hour. I really, I really so hope that So this is whenever I hear public says, oh yeah, they've been down for an hour and a half. I was like, that's not possible. Exactly. But everyone here swears it. <laughs> that, that's the only thing that I haven't done was my, I, I promised to like try to get them to dive with me and yeah. I'll be on my scuba gear and then film them and with the and, and time as well. So that yeah. they, you know, they get, you know, and I I'll think they put just it don't on have YouTube. A good sense of time. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, it might not be an hour. Maybe they're they're exaggerating. So okay. So even if maybe I'm not a hundred, I'm not convinced by the times people say that yeah. they stay underwater. The part that amazes me is so I don't know whether this is true of your uncles or some folks you know back in Aurora. It's not just how long people stay underwater, but they're not sitting still in a pool. No. They're spearfishing. They are. While underwater for three minutes. Yeah. And down. 
And we're not talking two meters under the water. No, because that would be impossible to catch fish because they're very skittish at two meters. Yeah. The fish that are like swimming and taking, uh, you know, taking their time and easy to shoot are somewhere around 10 to 15 meters. There's at least once I've been diving here before we're down doing a survey and some guy with a spear just, you know, no equipment, yeah. no dive equipment, just swims by casually. Yeah, 15 meters down. Wow, it's incredible. They, yeah. they do it every day, every day, and then they just start to develop their, you know, breath holding technique, I guess. And then they did, yeah, they, they just got better and better at it every day, which made, made them like go deeper, even deeper than, uh, because you can tell that they're starting to get deaf and their eardrums are like popped out already or something. Oh, because, so they're not equalizing properly. Well, they, or, they, yeah. they, yeah, they, they might have. Um, so there are actual something. health risks. Like it is, <laughs> it is actually dangerous. Yeah. You've had the chance to do uh, all sorts of different like fish surveys, coral reef surveys, invertebrate surveys, all this stuff around all of the, pretty much every island in the Gilberts in this chain, every island in Phoenix, Christmas Island as well. What do you think, like what are the biggest marine challenges here? Like what are the biggest threats to the marine environment? It goes down to people, Yeah, I think. Uh, because we're setting these guidelines, right? So, the, you know, just don't overfish and, you know, keep these fish. Uh, we're trying to set limits for, um, like, size limits and stuff. The great example would be, like, here on Satara, right? Yeah. The population is bigger than the land. There's a, it's really crowded. There's a lot of mouths to feed. People are just going out fishing anyhow right yeah. whatever however they can whatever they can so they're when they're actually fishing a lot of fish they're also destroying what's out there yeah. they're they're surrounding reefs with um gill nets and then they started poking around the reef so that the fish go out and get stuck in the net yeah. and then during the process they're you know they're they might be uh breaking off a, a colony or two during the of course process. yes yeah. So the government sets minimum size. You're not supposed to catch a, the the young fish, basically the small ones. Uh, size limits, and but there's also some fisheries that get closed, right? Yep. There's some things you're not supposed to catch at all. So sea cucumbers, pretty much closed. Pretty much closed. Sea cucumbers, yeah. sea cucumbers have been closed. The fishery, uh, I think it's more than a decade now. Yeah. And. Um, surprisingly well i don't think it's surprising because it's they still haven't recovered yet after what they did to it you know where the, there was like an extensive uh export and it there was like the harvest was really really um he, he really did hit them hard on uh yeah. during those times when they were that the export was like booming and they took everything <laughs> the fishing threat here is not so much for local consumption it was that things were being caught to export right to export yeah, i mean so, maybe in tarawa the yeah. local consumption mm -hmm. is enough that it's really affecting the fishery but on the outer islands there's only a few thousand people living on yeah. the island the uh, local consumption is not that local hard. consumption is not is not like a, an issue because for subsistence but then when you get um businesses to go there and then they start like harvesting um, sea cucumbers to export and they're like sweeping the whole island within like in coastal waters and stuff and then you got oh we're exporting um, live reef fish trade like wrasses and stuff Maori wrasses oh is that for like aquariums no 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 they're, oh. they're actually live live fish. oh just training live yeah. fish okay and 
you know that could impose another problem because they'll, they'll they'll fish everything for it like they'll they'll target the other target fish and then some other including which we'll never know because they'll they'll just go out and fish they might when, fish so what do you mean by they when you say that <laughs> business is stuff i've i've I, I i was one there was one time that i i went to nanos to uh clear out a um a, a transshipment that they were harvesting um the target fishes were groupers, wrasses, and mm. uh, some others, right? Uh, it's a Chinese company, yeah. and um, we went. We I saw the wells in the ship, and they were uh, full of fish. And I, I, I got the numbers, but I told them, told them, was there any locals with you fishing? And then they replied that they some some said that there were, some said that there weren't any. And that's the problem, whether you didn't see them how they fished and you know where oh because the fished. methods there's a control of what the meth some methods are legal and some aren't yes yeah. because you wouldn't we we banned the use of anything like cyanide and and, and, yeah. and other like farmings and stuff like that does it really just like cyanide destructive fishing practices which i mean they're used in other parts of the world right it's yeah, yeah. Uh, so wait but like a company like that they got a permit from the government to do this yeah Okay, but then they might, nobody's, if nobody's monitoring it, yeah. they might go about the practice in the incorrect way, do damage, also maybe collect more fish than they were supposed to. Probably. Yeah, okay, wow. Which so I'm glad to say that it's not happening now. Yeah, which yeah. is good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but that's, I mean, that's a lot of the job of the people, of, of all of you at Coastal Fisheries, is sort of monitoring what's going on around the country. Yeah. Uh, now that's the coastal fisheries. I and mean, locally here, people eat all sorts of things off, um, coastal fish also eat the pelagic or open ocean fish which basically tuna yes. Yes. right yes. and so is tuna the main staple would you say like in diet it is for the fish that, i mean for the islands that don't have any lagoons okay yeah. <laughs> so that's uh yeah so pelagics are the, the the main diet from tunas to billfishes to sharks to yeah. Yeah, yeah so that's which is understandable and flying fish for those with the lagoon, um, they've got more options, like yeah. a variety of fish, from reef fish to lagoon fish, and um, pelagics as well. Yeah. So it differs in, from what, what we know the types of islands. What was, uh, what's been your favorite place to go diving here? I was gonna say the Phoenix Islands would wouldn't count because. No. Well, I mean, it's it's easily the best place to dive, yeah. right? You know, you 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 go there, you got uh, like coral reef that's like what a couple hundred years or even millions of years ago that are still there from from uh, uninhabited. Yeah, island, yeah, right? it's so been no there forever and it's uninhabited. And then you got like fish that would actually swim over to you and bump you in your mask. So really, yes. They're just not used to seeing people. So they, they don't know what you are. They're just not used to seeing anything like you before. And then they were they'll like, it's like, what is this? And then they'll come up and it's like, bump into your mask. And then they'll, <laughs> yeah. Like they're skittish when you like poke them and stuff. But eventually when you sit there for like a minute, you're surrounded with the, like five or six different species of fish coming in and thinking you're a coral or something. And they'll just like, yeah, I was lucky enough not to get to get bitten, but <laughs> what would bite you? Anything, I guess. But um, but yeah, I got a I got a a Lugianus bohar, a red bass that came up and like bumped me in my mask because I was sitting still, 
I wanted I wanted to like see what happens if you're like just there and then yeah. they all, everything came over and it's like yeah sharks swim by like you know looking at you and then this fish came up and just what is this and just bumped me in the mask and I I laughed and like my bubbles burst out <laughs> and that's where they like shoot off yeah the, bu- then, the bubbles scared off yeah. that's uh for folks listening Iron Taste is obviously a very experienced diver He's a very stoic diver, so I can completely imagine seeing him just float completely still underwater for many minutes at a time (laughs) and scaring some fish. Uh, Whenever I come here, uh, people ask me all the time, are you going to see sharks? Or when I get home, they're like, do you have pictures of sharks? That's what I always wanted to see. Um, Do you see sharks when we're out diving here? Yes, I do. Um, I would say most commonly... I w- you wouldn't miss one in Putaritari sometimes uh, and um, in Tapitawea and North and South as well. I, it's one of the Southern Islands. Yes, yeah. in the Southern Islands. Reef sharks? Because, you know, so there's Most a lot of white tip and black tip reef sharks, which are s- small and small and harmless. Uh-huh. Yeah. Have you ever come across, because there's a long, there's a lot of stories here about tiger sharks right. and things. Uh, I've never come across or like dove and then like uh, see a, a tiger shark swim by me or so, so, or like in the distance. No, that hasn't happened yet. However, I've, my relatives have caught many of the tiger sharks back home in Adorai. Wow. So no one, when somebody in North America or Europe, I think, hears about catching sharks, they immediately get nervous. They're like, well, hold on a second. You're not supposed to catch sharks. People are taking them for their fins. But that's not really what happens here. It's traditional. People yes. catch sharks and eat them. Um, yeah, because you have before, yeah, you catch them and then you sell the fins to whoever's buying them, right, for export as well. But people were catching the shark because they were going to eat it. And you might then as well that then was, sell the Yeah, fin. that was yeah. the main reason for catching yeah. them. It's just for food. And it's a delicacy from where I'm from. So I know that. Um, so that was a that was before, and then we established a a fisheries act. As well. it's in the fisheries act that your shark finning is not allowed as well, and it's yeah. banned. So now we got you can only get sharks for food, and you you wouldn't sell the fins. What are some things that you think could really be helpful, like sort of management wise, at this stage? In Kiribati, you're talking about some of the fisheries, like the, some of the pressures on the fisheries. Well, first of all, I think the fisheries, the coastal fisheries uh, regulation is doing a really good job right now. Yeah. Uh, and speaking from uh, actually hearing them and getting to know what the uh, other islands are doing right now. For example, in North Tarawa, they before when they were using splash fishing, which is considered a um, uh, destructive fishing method. And then we splash fishing. So when you set out a net and then drive the boat along and you hit it, you hit on the surface with a crowbar or something heavy and doing like splashing just to drive the fish to the net. There's another one like bell ringing where you put like a a steel or crowbar, which it's this case it's usually the so not the go to. Yeah, no, no, no. So that's why it's considered a destructive fishing method. But They'll put a crowbar there and just bang it, and it like it rings underwater, which kind of drives the fish nuts. And then they'll, you know, this was yeah, this was uh, a couple years ago, and this was happening. And they were seeing they they've seen like a to- uh, decline in fisheries, especially the bonefish, 
and um, goldfishes and some other species that usually they have like come in schools and aggregate at the tip of Na and Bariki. Yeah, but the, very, then, the very north tip of the island. Of the, the island of, of North Tarawatu, yeah. And um, so that stopped. And then when the coastal regulation came in, having said, um, no, like the closures, fishing closures for those said fishes and uh, bonefish and whichever fish that are like aggregating at that time, you should not fish for them, like fish for something else. And for those years, it's actually recovered. And now they're seeing um, schools of uh, bonefish and um, uh, goldfishes that are that they used to see long way back before that, which oh, is good. Yeah, I, I think it's a pretty good um, um, progress. We've made progress on that. It's not only a, a, Tarawa, a North Tarawa, but actually Mayana, the neighboring. Yeah, Mayana is not told to the south of yep, us. Yeah, Tarawa is also experiencing the same thing. And there's okay. A, yeah. So regulation I, actually working. I think it's actually working. It's a uh, from just from our last trip in Abaya. Yeah. We had, we had bonefish and some other reef fish that you we had dinner that, that, that oh yeah fun. that's right yeah so i that's I heard, why there were so many bones in that <laughs> so i told them like how did you catch them and then oh we just like set out a, a a net because there were so many that you don't have to like actually drive out further into the lagoon they were just off 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 of the place that they're they're shore and just oh so they just caught in short like yeah, inshore in the lagoon yeah, oh yeah. Well, with, with the, I didn't even, you know, we, talk, we you were telling next. me what it was we were eating. I didn't actually ask where they got them. Uh -huh. Yeah. So oh, okay. I thought that was good progress on, on the yeah. management. Thanks to a keen interest in and great aptitude for marine research, Adentes has had the opportunity to live and visit a few places abroad. He worked in the Pacific Community, a regional organization with headquarters in Noumea, the capital of the French Overseas Territory of New Caledonia. He's also been a part of projects in Boston and in Japan. We ended the interview talking about those experiences and about the enduring pull of home. You live abroad and you call it home, but it, was, it, it never quite really felt like home, if you yeah. know what I mean. It's just the simple life, I guess, because I, I actually say this uh, time, when times like uh, like a scientist uh, asked me why, what what's the difference between um, living uh, overseas and, and, and here? So um, my often response was like, it's like going shopping. Like if you go buy bread, there's only one bread you have to take. Um, and then if you go like no man, you kind of don't you got baguettes, yeah. you got a whole meal, you got what I, I forgot, but it's like one aisle of bread there oh, or, or, or bread. two. And yeah. then you got different times. You got brown, you got white. So I think coming back home is always easy. Is It's always good. It's it's just easy. The simple life. You, you have coconuts um, and fish and that was it for food, for lunch yeah. or dinner. You don't, you, you have like bread for breakfast, not like a, a Nile of cereals that you can choose from. And then you got like, uh, you know, it's, it's just like, yeah, I would say it's just only the simple stuff. We got now rice is becoming a staple food for yeah. us Kiribati, which is a little bit sad, but 
going out in the supermarkets, you got brown rice, you got white rice, you got long grain, you got medium grain, which is sometimes confusing, and you got a, a whole aisle of it as well. But what I love about it here is just everything is just simple. You go out, you fish for food, you come back, you got coconuts, you got breadfruit, you got rice, and then that's that's dinner, that's lunch. Breakfast could be a mix of bread and pancakes and you put grated coconut on top of it and whatever just to add like and mix it up a bit but yeah i would say i would miss that which is why yeah i could live uh, um, overseas for a year or two but at the back of my mind it would always be oh, i wish i could go back and i miss this like uh, going out fishing i like your supermarket analogy because <laughs> i mean i think about how we just to go to go shopping for food we go to like three different stores because they each carry different things that we would want right yeah. and there's a sort of the paradox of choice right it seems like a good thing to have choices but it might be easier not to right it it's yeah i think it's got its drawbacks because you know you could have you could choose something with like uh more minerals and vitamins in it rather than sticking to the to the whole like you know usual thing that you have every day <laughs> but again, I think if if you if you're if you're sticking to the traditional food, I think the diet is actually the Kitabas diet actually does seem pretty good. It's the challenge is this sort of hybrid between the traditional and the kind of Western yeah. imported stuff, I guess. Now the only problem with uh, you being someone that's been overseas and come back here is that you worked in Boston, ah, and you're yeah. a Celtics fan now. <laughs> <laughs> What's it going to take to get you to be a Raptors fan? <laughs> I don't know, maybe a trip to Toronto. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> so we got we got to cook something up. We got to get you to Canada. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but I, yeah, I became a Celtics fan and I went to the uh, TD Stadium, which was the Boston Garden back then. And uh, yeah, I just it, I got stuck with the Celtics. And I, yeah, I was a fan of Ron John Rondo back then yeah. too. So yeah. All right. Well, I got I got to work on you. You got to. I got to yeah, work. I got to yeah. work on you. You know, it's funny. I bet I imagine people listening are wondering, wait, aren't is a NBA fan? How do you can you you can watch games there? How does it work? No, no, no. Uh, so how I wish it, because because there is like Kitabas can feel very separate from the rest of the world. But, yeah. you know, foreign news and, and things do come here. You just don't have the same level of connectivity. Right. Yeah. Yeah. We the, there's broadband, but not. Mm, not so not so much as like broadband yeah, it's not that broad. yeah. and it, it goes on and on and off yep, yeah it does yeah. Uh, uh we really sure uh, do hope that the um the, the company that's working on the underwater cable the the oh fiber optic cable fiber here, optic right? cable yeah. is coming in soon which i think christmas has it now but i'm not sure but they uh, i've heard i got a friend in communications that they said that they're working on it and hopefully soon but clips of and you know and and the nba highlights on youtube and on google is what have um, that's how people watch how, how people end up watching it so because it's i mean in even the level of uh connection you know online connection to the world now in 2023 i mean it's changed a lot it has since my i mean my first visit i think there was an internet cafe in Bayriki that you know with no air conditioning or fans where you could sit and drip sweat on, on the computer <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
uh, where I sent emails home. But I think that was, I don't remember any other way. Like it was in the understanding with my family, if I came here, it was like, well, you might not hear, you may or may not hear from me. Right. Uh, and it's, it's changed dramatically. It yeah. changed. And I was, I was, I think I'm lucky enough to say that I, I know what um, dial up is. Cause we, yeah. <laughs> I, we had it at home yeah. at one point with the in telephone cables, plugging in and the computer and stuff like that. Uh, 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 this generation doesn't know what, it, what dial up is, but yeah, you know, you get that ringing thing. And so. But yeah, it has, it has totally changed. Uh, we got 4G network running and and some like that but how so do you have like you've been here from most of that change like do you has the availability of 4g now like is is this really had a cultural impact yes yeah um what do you call this generation again like millennials and stuff yeah yeah so it really i think it's the perfect <laughs> name for it because it's changed a lot in the culture uh you get i spend days out like kids you know playing out in the in the dirt out there or either out in the dirt or swimming in the lagoon and your water right you're getting pulled back into the houses and the stay indoors and now you're just trying to kick out your kids out to the dirt and to the water to play outside rather than stay and you know fiddle with their phones and stuff which is kind of like sad thing, but so do you do you worry about that? I mean, obviously with your own family a little bit, but just in general yeah. culturally, do you worry that like the connectivity is going to influence just people's knowledge of like traditional culture and stuff? I think so. Yeah. I think so. I worry about that as well um, because if if you don't have the time to go out and do you know locally, uh, you know local chores i would say yeah well that's the start of how to go into local you know uh, knowledge of doing cutting toddy and stuff you wouldn't start off like before you could like you climb trees you know playing and then it ended up oh you if you're like okay doing it here here's your knife and uh, yeah your bottles and go cut toddy and this is how you do it see it's so it's it's like a a step if you're you're doing local chores to actually doing you know the local chores you should be doing in, in helping out the family now you're just sitting in the in the living room with the uh, mobile phone and watching uh, yeah. I, did, I mean youtube and stuff it's it's such it's such a change for it anywhere is. in the world but uh, particularly for a place that had been really kind of disconnected from a lot of like the culture from, outs- from the outside yeah. Yeah. Until quite well, recently. We're sitting in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, like yeah. smack the middle of nowhere. So, well, ocean isn't necessarily nowhere, but <laughs> the um, and you're just saying cutting toddy. So cutting toddy is going up the going up the coconut trees to get the coconut sap. Sap, yeah, yeah, yeah. which That's can be made into could turn into uh, if you ferment it, it could be an alcohol. Oh yeah, so the sour <laughs> sour toddy, sour toddy, which tastes like turpentine. And <laughs> Huge thanks to Anne and Tace for the thoughtful interview and for always being such a great support during my visits. And I also want to give a shout out to our friend and colleague and fellow diver, Toya. I know interviews aren't your thing. I knew better than to ask. And I also want to give a shout out to Tureka and the team at Coastal Fisheries for once again being great hosts during my visits. Thanks also go out to Eddie Atada Aram for his help coordinating some of the interviews for this podcast 
and to Aaron Woods at the UBC's Department of Geography for the production help. It has been a true pleasure to share all these people's voices with you. There are two voices I wish I could have included, those of Trato Karata and Tuaki Tima, two local friends who left us too soon. Sabo, my friends. <laughs>